0: Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak, with me, as always, Christian Chinchilla. Hope everybody is well. Uh, I've kind of just been working a lot, <laughs> burying myself in work as we go into a kind of winter gloom here in, in many, many ways. Um, so I actually have quite a lot of links to share with you, and I have a great interview with Peter Bazaris of Codestream, who I'll come back to in a minute. But I actually have a few links I want to share with you, so let's get to that. First, so first, a couple of COVID-related posts, sort of. Uh, this was an article, um, the news was from Deutsche Bank, but it was quite widely reported in a few outlets. Um, this is Deutsche Bank. So this is actually written by Joanna Partridge on The Guardian, but there was a few outlets covering it. Staff who work from home after the, pandem- after the pandemic, it's actually maybe a crucial thing to bear in mind, should pay more tax. I found this quite fascinating. This... Deutsche Bank, in a very sort of cold, practical way, say that if you're working from home, you're not contributing as much to the economy with going out for lunch and things like that. So you should pay more tax for the privilege. I find this interesting for many ways because it doesn't seem very realistic. Just because you work from home doesn't mean you stop eating lunch. I actually go for lunch every day because I want to, even if it means takeaway at the moment because I want to support local businesses I am still getting public transport I'm in our office at the moment so actually that's a little different maybe from many others but the other fact that a lot of people seem to be well sorry that Deutsche Bank seem to be ignoring here is that if you work from home you have to pay much more for electricity internet heating etc cetera, etc cetera, which is quite a cost and you're saving money for a lot of uh, costs to your employer as well, or your employers, because they're not paying for offices so much. Uh, it somewhat depends, of course. So I think this feels somewhat unrealistic in, in many ways. Uh, and that, uh, yeah, it doesn't really seem to represent the way that a lot of people do work from home and the increased costs you have elsewhere anyway. So maybe the cost shouldn't be paid by the employee, but the employer or other businesses or things like that, you know, the ben- businesses that are benefiting from us from working from home. Who knows? I would love to get your feedback on this post. So if you have any feedback on that, please find my contact details at christianchilla.com. And yeah, I'd love to hear your opinions on that piece because I think it's, it feels very misguided. And I'd really like to hear from people who are really working from home, not an economist who maybe doesn't really understand the situation. Another sort of connected one. This is from Time magazine from Alejandro de will la... start that again. Alejandro de la Gaza on um the somewhat low adoption of COVID trace apps. And this is mostly America-focused. I think the numbers in Europe are slightly better. They're not massively better. I think Germany is about 20 to 25%, which is not crazy high, really. And why is that? Um I would argue, I mean, this article goes into a lot of detail about some of the failures, some of the misconceptions about the applications, the fact that, especially in this paragraph here, that they were meant to supplement uh, other contact tracing, not replace it, um, and help with that. There was definitely a lot of poor rollouts as well, some very late rollouts. But I think a lot of people just wonder why is it needed as well? Or what use is it? I've seen a lot of feedback on the German one on the, uh, Android, the, sorry, the Google Play Store saying like, they don't really feel like it's helping them anyway or doing anything. Um, I mean, obviously, the virtue of you receiving no information is potentially a good thing, but it also, in, in some respects, you're most at risk uh, being exposed to the virus from someone who doesn't use the application, so you have no idea. So there's a lot of kind of missing gaps, and this is where it's supposed to fill those gaps, and maybe its part in the rollout of contact tracing has not been so well accomplished. And I think the interesting thing about this article we should actually look at the title, were Big Tech's best idea. So Big Tech, Apple and Google were trying to help. And did they really? Did they really do very much? This is kind of the argument on this article. So I don't know. What's your experience using these applications? Um actually yeah, we can see here. So one of the highest in the world, Ireland, is 34%, which is still not so high. Um so yeah, what are, what are your Feelings, what are your opinions? Have you used them? Have you found them useful? Oh, here we go. Germany, 27% in September. Yeah. Um, what do you think would be needed to get people to, to use them more widely? Do you think we should? Yeah. I'd also be interested in your feedback there and what the tech companies could or should or shouldn't do to maybe help or not. Now, this is from Neiman Lab from Joshua Benton. An article on, can Spotify be the one to convince people to pay for podcasts? Uh, As a long-term podcast creator, I can say that there's a couple of positives and flaws with podcasts, some of which are the same thing. One is that podcasts are notoriously hard to get good statistics on and to monetize. Actually, the podcast platform, one of its biggest virtues is that it's very simple. It's just actually an RSS feed with links to audio files and various... People have tried to add to that, including Spotify and Apple to a certain extent. But fundamentally, that's kind of mostly what it is. Um, And the simplicity of that is what a lot of people have liked. And people have tried to monetize podcast platforms in the past, but they've not really worked that well. And most people just end up sticking to advertising as an easy solution. But even that doesn't really help because it's very hard to prove to an advertiser that your your listenerships are worthwhile. So Spotify has been obviously doing quite a lot recently to bring a lot of um, exclusive podcasts to it to its platform. And obviously, if you're already paying for Spotify, then you're getting access to those. What they then pass on to the content creators, who knows? Um, it's Probably in some respects, it's less effort to make a podcast than an album. And in other respects, it's more effort because it's very regular effort as opposed to making an album once every one or two years or something like that. So it's kind of hard. And I think this headline reflects back on some of what I said earlier, that you're competing with free and easy. Um, Why would people use the Spotify app and consume only the Spotify content if they can find it free elsewhere. It has to be very compelling content to make you even want to do that. And there's a lot of amateurs in the podcast world, myself included, who just want to do it. And monetization is a secondary concern. Um, and so you end up kind of, and this is one of the, the criticisms of Spotify generally, is that it doesn't necessarily help independent creators like me and the same argument has been made for the musicians. It just kind of helps the same people who were already popular. So, yeah, and previous efforts have not gone so well, although not so many. Um, yeah, we will see. I actually personally would rather stick to the sort of Patreon um, uh, creator-to-member model without having a... Well, Patreon is a third party in the middle, but maybe... <laughs> more direct, and I can do more what I want with it, I suppose, and I can distribute where I want. I think that's kind of the model I would rather stick to and a mixture of advertising too. But, yeah, if you have any opinions on that, I also don't actually use Spotify, so it doesn't really affect me in in many ways. Uh, I'd love to hear your opinions. Oops. (laughs) Okay, next up, uh, this is from Andrew Cunningham on Ars Technica. But um, a lot of people obviously covered this, the release of Mac OS 11. I am running it. I'm running Big Sur. I took the plunge. I'm producing video and audio, so it can't be so bad. Um, but this is a very nice article that goes into a lot of details about what to look for. Um, and I've been working my way through some of them to, to try and to try and figure out what features I like. Um, I think some of the things I do like, I think I'm actually going to do a proper video on this. I can't really show you on the stream right now because I am have it set up just to share the browser window. But I do actually quite like some of the look and feel aspects, I must admit. They're a little fuzzy, but I kind of like them. Um, there's been some reports in the past couple of days about bypassing VPNs, which is interesting. Maybe we'll dig into that at a later date. Um, and a few things broken here and there. I found QuickTime seems to be somewhat broken strangely <laughs> she's odd seeing as it's an apple one i also love it seemed like a good time to recap previous versions as well and i have been using mac os since version 7 so pre uh, x10 whatever we used to call it at the time um so it's quite nice to have a trip down memory lane to see some of these including these cd roms i think i was getting cd roms up until leopard definitely i can't quite remember um, but yeah, I think I will do a, a full video sometime in the next two weeks to recap some of these. Some of the experience here I did not find, uh, saying that Big Sur needs a more drive space. I did not actually find that. I've actually got, had this space freed up. Officially, um, Mac OS X or 10 is gone. It is now 11. So a whole bunch of things here. The startup sound is back. Ah, oh. Anyway, I'm getting too much into the weeds here. I should probably... Uh, save this for a, a future video or maybe blog post. But uh, if you've installed it, what have your experiences been? I think a lot of people are holding off, but you can take it from me. It's mostly okay. So if you've tried it as well, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Next is an article from Huan Yu Zhu and Tai Wu Li on the IEEE Spectrum magazine, actually. From foldable phones to stretchy screens. This was quite a cool article talking about like the what's going to happen next with foldable screens and we've seen some prototypes there's a couple here uh royal corp with the FlexiPal, and of course we've had the galaxy fold um and some others pr- uh, pushing into this space but what's going to happen next with like really literally foldable stretchable screens and there even are some prototypes coming now so you can see some of these here that don't crack as they fold but actually taking it to the next steps um And I found this quite interesting to see what could be possible. And I think a lot of people really want to get rid of these sort of hard backs and hinges and things like that and what will actually happen. So if you're interested, this is an engineering magazine. So if you want to get a little bit more details about some of the materials and the processes that are feeding this, then take a look. I think you'll find it interesting. And finally, it's a little early for recaps of 2020, but here is an article from Scott Carey on Computer World about some of the biggest technology acquisitions of 2020. And some I'd forgotten about, actually. It's been a, an interesting year. Um, so there's some here that you might not be familiar with, um, but some as you go down the list. So Twilio acquiring Segment. That's a very interesting acquisition that I had missed. NVIDIA acquiring Arm. I think we had forgotten about that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was an interesting one. Progress, acquiring Chef. Progress have acquired uh, quite a few companies. They're one of these companies you've never heard of, but own a lot of other companies. HPE, acquiring Silverpilk, P- Peak, Pilk. Sousa, acquiring Rancher. I'd forgotten about that, actually. <laughs> uh, Uber, acquiring Postmates. Postmates is not something you really get outside the US, but it um, was another one I'd forgotten about. Google, acquiring North. I think a lot of people thought this might be, um, a follow up to Google Glass, but we didn't really hear anything after that. Um, Amazon acquiring an autonomous driving startup, MasterCard acquiring an open banking company, which um, is interesting. Again, not seen much there. Uh, and, and there's a lot more going further and further here, some of which I had forgotten about. Facebook acquiring Giphy. <laughs> um, Zoom acquired Keybase, that one I forgot about, especially as a lot of people use Keybase as an alternative to many other platforms. The fact that it's now acquired by Zoom, I wonder how many people know that, actually. Um, NVIDIA also acquired some other companies earlier in the year. Verizon acquired BlueJeans. BlueJeans is a very popular kind of VoIP platform in the corporate space, and Verizon now owns it which I'd also forgotten about, to be honest with you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think there's a lot more you can dig down here, but I had forgotten about many, many of them. So have a look. Uh, What do you think is the most interesting acquisition of 2020 so far? That was my links for the week. Uh, And now here's my interview with Peter
1: Paxaris of Codestream. Enjoy. Codestream is a developer collaboration platform that makes it super easy for development teams who want to discuss, review, and understand code. Mm -hmm. It came out of, it's a startup that was uh, a Y Combinator company, Mm -hmm. and it was one of those companies where it's sort of scratch your own itch, where you have a problem and you look to solve it by creating a new product to solve that problem. I've been a startup CEO for the last 25 years. CodeStream Mm -hmm. is my fourth business. And all of my prior businesses have been, in one way or another, about communication. And Mm -hmm. one of the things we realized is that communication tools for software engineers were kind of left behind. Mm -hmm. We've got a whole bunch of really great new ways to communicate with mobile, and specifically applications on mobile for keeping in touch with friends and family and also for work as well uh, but these general purpose communication tools aren't really suitable for engineers and so with CodeStream, we set out to solve that by creating a collaboration platform that allows engineers to discuss code more easily and be more efficient in a team context in working on a shared code base
0: so I'd just like to go back slightly a little bit. Um, sure. What were the other companies? What, what were they doing? Were they related or completely unrelated? Or uh,
1: Related in a way, um, although each one was unique. Um, the first business, and I, I should point out that it's not just me. So I've had the good yeah, fortune sure, of, sure. of working with the same other three co-founders for the last 25 years through all of these businesses. So these were guys that I met when I was in university at Carnegie Mellon University in this computer science program. And once we graduated, worked on Wall Street for a little bit, one night we were drinking beers at a bar and we decided, hey, let's start a company. And that first business turned into Commissioner.com, which was a Mm -hmm. fantasy sports company. Mm -hmm. So it was one of the first companies to put fantasy sports online. So that's fantasy football, fantasy baseball, and we branched out to a whole bunch of other sports. So we had a lot of fun building that business. We had no idea what we were doing, but we were young and eager and, uh, and just spent many, many, many hours writing software. Um, but at its core, if you think about what fantasy sports is, it's taking an existing offline activity, which is being a sports fan, and then moving it online and making it more fun, social, and engaging. And we built that business for a few years before selling it to CBS Sports, and now it's the the platform that CBS Sports still uses to this day. Okay, so that was the first CBS, one. C-
0: CBS, Sports, and fantasy sports are two things I'm not that familiar with, but uh... oh, that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's pretty popular. It's
1: actually you know, uh, fantasy sports is now a multi billion dollar business in the United States. Yeah, and uh, when I'm we started
0: into uh, games and and fantasy, just not
1: sports, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, when we started, you know, it was fantasy sports existed but it was a game that like you know dozens of people played you know and they they were managing everything with spreadsheets and doing everything manually yeah really difficult process so the web was a perfect solution to make it easier and more accessible
0: yeah and i I guess now it's probably almost normal um i suppose yeah
1: yeah yeah and yeah very and, and
0: so what what company were you in and what specific kind of itches were you trying to scratch when you came up with the idea for Codestream?
1: Well, that that, that first one was, as I mentioned, it was taking an offline activity and making it more fun mm. and communicative and social. So it was based around being a sports fan, but it was really mostly like online tools to connect you with your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, our second business, if, if you don't mind me going through the, sort of the progression No, no, here, for sure, for sure, yeah. Um, the second business was called multiply and multiply was an early player in social media so we were competitive with sites like myspace and facebook and friendster and our unique differentiator was that we were the first company to come out with a social news feed so the idea where you could see in one place all the updates from your friends and family Mm -hmm. and in fact that was like our central feature that was the thing that why we built multiply and It's kind of what Facebook is today, right? Although back when Facebook first launched, they didn't have a social news feed. In fact, they didn't add one for many years after they first launched. So that was the way in which we originally grew our our customer base. But what we found was the customers were using Multiply to do buying and selling more than anything else. (laughs) And so we did a, a soft pivot into social commerce and it was on that basis that we were able to sell the business to NASPERS, which is one of the world's largest media companies. So it was a great experience working with the same guys again. Had another successful exit, which was great. We're very fortunate about that. But at its core, what we were doing with Multiply was taking an offline activity, which is you know, socializing in the real world. We were moving it online and making it more connected, more fun, and more engaging. So it's very similar in, in principle To our first business, only with a different target audience and a different use case. So instead of sports fans, now we're talking about personal media sharing. And then our third business, it's a similar story. Um, We built a, a company called Glip, which was a competitor to Slack. And in fact, we launched Glip the same month as Slack. And it was really weird because both products were nearly identical when we first launched. It was eerie. It was like, you know... And it's completely coincidentally, and we independently developed these things. And a team-based communication tool, you know, again, we had taken all the learnings we had Mm -hmm. from the prior companies and applied it to a new context, which was business communications. Mm Because we thought that we had improved personal communication quite a bit. Now let's try to improve business communication by building a more efficient way to take an offline activity, which was, you know, in person meetings and things like that. Yeah. And then moving it online, making it more fun, more engaging. And so that was general purpose um business communications. And then so so that gives you a little bit of a, an idea and a, a background about why we think that we had the right expertise in order to solve this particular problem with CodeStream. Because with CodeStream we're trying to make developers more communicative and mm-hmm and solve communication problems and collaboration problems. And we've had a 20-plus year history of doing the same thing for other audiences. Mm -hmm. So we know quite a bit about what works in group communication contexts and how we think we could improve the way in which developers communicate about source code. Because for, for any listener who's not super familiar with how the development process works, Every software engineer uses something called an editor or an IDE. IDE stands for Integrated Development Environment. And it's within that special purpose-built program that they write code. Mm -hmm. And yet, unlike virtually every other collaboration software that exists today, today's IDEs have zero capability for communication. So there is no way, if you and I are working on a code base together, there is no way for me to ask you a question about the code that I'm looking at in my editor. Like, that doesn't exist anywhere. And when I mean,
0: we... I suppose, um, I think VS Code has the um, remote collaboration thing, real-time collaboration extension, they, sort They of, do, so that's, yeah.
1: you're referring to Live Share and yeah, live share yeah. allows you to sort of do pair programming which is kind of yeah. like opening up a zoom meeting um and for that that's sorry let me let me be more specific when i say there's no capability there's no simple capability yeah, because sure. you could imagine um you know the and analogy no we like to use either. yeah right right exactly the, yeah. the analogy we <laughs> like to use is google docs um yeah. you know i'm old enough to remember when microsoft word documents had something called track changes. And like, I would have the Microsoft Word document, I'd turn on track changes, I'd ask all my questions or or make my comments, and then I'd save the file, and then I'd send it over to you via email with an attachment, and then a cover letter describing what I had done, and then you would look at it, and you would iterate and send it back to me. And then Google Docs came around, and oh my God, it was better, right? Because within the document, I can just select the thing I want to talk about and type my comment. And so that's the difference. That's what CodeStream brings to the development environment. So, yes, there are screen sharing tools. There are out-of-band communication tools. So I I can copy and paste that code into something else, which is what most people end up doing. Like if you do Mm -hmm. have a quick question about code, you're probably going to copy and paste it into Slack or copy and paste it into Microsoft Teams or something like that or into an email or a chat window. But with CodeStream, we've embedded the collaboration into the development environment in a way that's unique. And I, I'm I'm actually kind of surprised because we've been doing this for a couple of years now and there hasn't been another alternative. Like, we're still the only company that's delivering on this particular use case, which is really simple. I mean, it couldn't be easier. You just select the code and you type your question. And we mm-hmm. think that that's fundamentally important to improving the frequency of communication around source code, which I will argue is a really um, a really, really important thing to do uh, for development teams to improve their efficiency. It's it's interesting
0: because um, in some respects, some of the major, uh, well, one of the major development platforms, GitHub, is sort of mm-hmm. trying to solve this by taking the reverse approach, where right. in your pull request, they may and they announced it satellite, but I'm not one hundred percent sure how available it is yet and then you can kind of boot up an environment from the web browser and code from there. But I think I think you're right and, and many are right in that um most people uh actually want to stick to doing things in their editor instead, um because that's where they're familiar with. There's also a degree of offline work and things like that, should you need it. And there's a lot of just customization that um you can kind of get in these virtual environments, but it's not—it's mm-hmm. um, not so so seamless. Um, yep. So you, yeah. you bring
1: up Code Spaces, which is an awesome initiative, and I, I think it's it's got a lot of potential. It remains to be seen how much of a mainstream product it'll be versus you know a tool for making quick fixes. You know, am I going to use Code Spaces twenty four by seven uh, as a developer? Is it going to be my primary way to develop? Or is it going to be an ad hoc way? I'm, I'm not sure. I think the jury's still out on that. But interestingly, like Code Spaces doesn't solve the problem that I described. Um, it, it's online, which I think some people associate with oh, if it's in a web browser, that means it must be collaborative. But that's mm-hmm. not true. Um, the problem that we're trying to solve is for somebody who's looking at code and doesn't understand it, I want to ask a question about how it works. You know, So I see a function, and I'm sure we've all been there. I mean, as developers, we spend most of our time trying to understand code, even if it's maybe it's code that you wrote yourself six months ago, and you're trying to remember what it was about that code. Uh, how did it work? So we're trying to solve that problem to make it easier to understand code by making it easier to talk about code. And so importantly, we're not talking about a PR, right? We're not talking about a set of changes. We're not talking about reviewing code. We're talking about, I've got 5 million lines of code in my code base. I, I don't understand all of it. I'm going to have questions about that code. How do I get answers to my question? And um, I think that a lot of time when people think of code discussion, their their mind immediately goes to code review, which is understandable because that's a very important time to talk about code because we're talking about whether this set of changes is good enough to merge. But what we're trying to promote is what we call shift left code discussion, mm-hmm. much like, like in, in testing, in QA, in testing automation, there's this movement to shift those tests left, to mm-hmm. shift them earlier into the development process. We want to shift code discussion earlier in the development process. We don't want to wait until there's a PR and completed code and somebody spent a week crafting a solution mm-hmm. to a problem for the first time that we have the opportunity to talk about it. We want to make it so that that developer can ask a question on day one before they write the first line of code. Hey, is this the right place to put this function? How do these two classes interact? Why is this function returning null for me? There's so many questions that engineers have. And in my experience, while developing code, Engineers tend to get a surface level understanding or just enough understanding to start writing, and we think the world would be a better place if more questions were asked before you write code and that 's why we 've built codestream to lower the amount of friction to make it easier to do that mm-hmm.
0: so let 's actually go into a little bit more detail about the the product so you have plugins for um, most of the major um, IDE environments, VS Code, mm-hmm. Visual Studio, JetBrains. Um, I mean, the only ones you're missing, probably you couldn't integrate with like Vim and Emacs. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, and then you integrate with a lot of tool, common tools, GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, Slack, MS Teams, Jira, Trello, and the ever-present more. Um, yeah. And sort of integrate them together. And actually when I tested it, I, I found some of the integrations quite cool. Like um, I can pull in a, a Trello card from one place and connect that straight to a Git branch um, and go from there. I mean, it was I was mostly testing on my own. So sometimes testing collaboration on your own is kind of difficult. <laughs> yep. uh, and you've done a pretty good job getting around the APIs of these various services, which I know can sometimes be limiting as well. I know the right. GitHub API is not as useful as maybe it could be um okay. and you've even got the options here for uh triggering um the github review processes and things like that mm. but then you've also had to add your own layer on top and i know some of that is the probably the limitations of the platforms and also mm. just because um yeah not everybody uses the same sets of tools in the same way together uh, and i think that was my first reservation um you've you have the work you've done is very good, but it does mostly involve people signing up for another service. Which right. which is fine. I mean people are used to doing it, but it's 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 an extra stumbling block for you. Um, and you I mean you can still kind of do a lot without using your layer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But then the real kind of glue comes if you do. Um, That's right. and I mean Putting monetization aside, because if you're just sitting on top of other people's APIs, then there's not really any way for you to monetize it apart from selling an extension or something like that. Uh, was that something you ever considered to not have that and just try to use all the, the native APIs of the, the tools you're integrating with? Or is it always the intention to add something on top?
1: Yeah, so that's a, an insightful question. Um, our goal with CodeStream, like the initial... Um, the inspiration for the company and for the product mm-hmm. was to solve that problem that, that that we were just talking about, which is to make it super easy for developers to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, what we heard from dev- engineering teams is that to solve that problem, their number one way to solve it was to walk across the hall and tap somebody on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. If I don't understand how code works, I've got to go ask somebody. Well, we can't do that anymore because of COVID. And even if we could, I think, Teams are increasingly remote, so tapping somebody on the shoulder is out. The second most common way we hear people do it is to copy and paste code from their editor into Slack. And while that's possible, it's a pretty deep context switch because within your IDE, there's so much contextual information that will be lost as soon as you hit that copy key and hit Alt tab. And the reason that you lose all that information is because you know, which repository did this come from, what version are you on, what branch you checked out to, what's the path to the file, Uh, which part of the file are you asking a question about, and so either you have to, you know, just assume that the readers of your message will intuit that information, or you have to manually create that information, so you have to say, in this repo, which is in this file, in this path, I'm on this branch, and then. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound like that much. But again, using the Microsoft Word analogy, imagine if every single time you wanted to comment on a Google Doc, you had to say on page four, in the third paragraph, in the second sentence, when you say this, you should. It's just maddening. And you would find that to be a totally unsatisfactory collaboration or communication solution. So we knew that because None of the existing tools you know all the issue trackers you you mentioned, all the code hosts that you mentioned none of these services have the ability to talk about code to just comment on code to preserve the context none of them have a messaging system somewhat surprisingly maybe none of them have a messaging system that understands what code is or that what a repo is um, in a way that made it easy to talk about code so we had to build that and that was the first thing we built with CodeStream. And what original customers told us was that, wow, this is a pretty, pretty great concept and great tool, mm. but I want it to work with the tools I'm already using. Mm. And that's when we de- went down the road of building those integrations. And a lot of that was driven from experience building Glip. As, as you m- recall, Glip was the, our, my prior business where we were competing with Slack. And one of the things that we saw is that Slack was super successful because of all the integrations Mm. that they built. So it was a general purpose messaging platform that then integrated with all the other tools you're using. And in doing so, Slack can kind of become a dashboard for your work communication. And so that's our vision for CodeStream as well. CodeStream, with all of the integrations that we have, can be a dashboard for your development communication. And that's important because... One of the As a developer, one of the things that you always want to maintain is you want to maintain the focus of being able to efficiently develop. Some people call it being in the zone or being in mm-hmm. flow. And by bringing your development tools into your IDE, but not the other ones, like not the 47 browser tabs that you have open in Chrome, not the 20 at mentions that are sitting in your Slack client But by only bringing those development tools that are relevant to your development into your IDE, we can enable you to still be collaborative with your teammates and yet keep all the noise out of your development environment. And we think that's really important to an efficient development process.
0: Hmm. So you mentioned to me in the conversation we had before this that you just had a, a major Kind of interface overhaul, um, mm-hmm. added some new features and things like that. So, yeah, what's, what's new in the past month or so?
1: Sure. Uh, Codestream 10 is the okay. release that we, we just uh, pushed. And it has two significant upgrades. The first is for VS Code users. Mm-hmm. Um, VS Code 1.50 is the first version of VS Code that allowed us to put a web view in the sidebar. Okay. What's a web view and a sidebar? Um, well, prior to 1.50 VS Code, to deliver uh, yeah. a rich, interactive yeah. user experience, you could only do that through something called a preview tab, mm. which is another tab in your editor. And the problem with that is that those tabs get lost and they get yeah. hidden behind a sea of other tabs.
0: And it kept like, and reappearing when there was nothing there and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. And yeah. it's just, they would get lost and you'd know how to find it. Where did CodeStream go? And difficult to manage because, you know, is it on the left? Is it on the right? If I split my window, does it move? All those things. And and then VS Code, thankfully, allowed us to put our user interface kind of where it belongs, where all of your other extensions are. So before 1.50, every extension, which is in the sidebar, you know, next to the activity bar, the only user interface you could have in there was a tree view. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's sort of like lists of things. And in order to provide a rich user experience we wanted to have, you know, a full UX, um, you know, dialogues, pop-ups, uh form fields, all these things. And so that's how we built CodeStream and and so finally we are able to put CodeStream into the sidebar. And when we did that, we completely redesigned the user experience and mm. the UI to be consistent with the other extensions that you have in VS Code. So now it looks and feels just like all the other extensions that you have. So everything is organized much better and it's in a it's much more intuitive to use because mm-hmm. anybody who's used a VS Code extension will immediately know how to use CodeStream. So that was the first major change that we made. And the second major change is that we dramatically improved all, our pull request integration. And so now with CodeStream you can if you're using GitHub, you can see a list of all the open PRs that are assigned to you that you authored that you've been requested as a reviewer and you can customize that query to show whatever you want and you can have multiple queries and then once you open the PR in your IDE we give you a nearly identical user interface that you would find on github.com and then we've added on top of it features to connect into VS code so for example when you're looking at the set of changes you can have the same diff hunks view which sort of show you stacked on top of each other all the differences in all the different files. Or if you want, you can have a tree view where you Mm -hmm. see a list of files that have changed, the sort of plus minus numbers, and then as you click on each one of those files, it'll show you using VS Code's built-in diff tool uh, the changes side by side. And so it's it's a much uh, more integrated PR experience that allows you to do anything you can do on github.com with respect to PRs. Now you can do it in your editor and then some. So mm-hmm. it's really a, a great way to work with pull requests uh, because you have all the things that your I- IDE can do, like jump to definition, your favorite key mm-hmm. bindings. Mm-hmm. Heck, it's in your theme with your favorite colors, you know, all of the muscle memory of your your keys, your key bindings that you love. And all that stuff is built right in. And now you can use your PRs in that context as well.
0: Of course, the only negative you always have is, again, a GitHub negative of if you work across multiple organizations, you have to get them to approve access, which has always been the bane of every integrators builder on top of github's existence unfortunately <laughs> it doesn't yeah, work it's like well i can't get the permissions i need you know <laughs> right and and uh, it's
1: it's uh, unnecessarily confusing i think because yeah, it is like the yeah. oauth screen where like we send you off to github.com to oauth and on that screen it sort of lists your projects and then these tiny little buttons that that if you miss those tiny little buttons to yep. approve or request access and just Hit the authorize button at the bottom, which is what, you know, we've watched customers and that's what they do all the time. They just see a big button at the bottom, they click it, and they will have missed the fact that you need to authorize the OAuth for that repo mm-hmm. or that organization. And so if they miss that, then it's just not going to work. And that I, I wish GitHub could improve that.
0: <laughs> so we've mentioned Visual Studio Code a lot um, Mm-hmm. and the, I mean you're pushing it fairly heavily on the front page of the website too but you also do support Visual Studio and JetBrains both That's of great. which have reasonably large user bases too. Is the experience pretty much the same or is it a little different depending on the IDE?
1: It's nearly identical across the different IDEs um, we, which has become even more true now that CodeStream is in the sidebar in VS Code yep. because that was the last major editor that could allow us to have a sort of permanent home for our user interface within the editor. Um, We built, and it's kind of an interesting technical challenge for us to have built the same user experience across 14 different IDEs, um, because each IDE has its own extension language and its own set of APIs. (laughs) So for those of us who remember what it was like to develop on the web in the late 90s, when we had the browser wars. So you had MSIE and you had Netscape Navigator and you had Safari coming on and Opera. And it was tough to build a website because you weren't sure how compatible it would be across Mm -hmm. those browsers, but at least they were all trying to do HTML and CSS and JavaScript, right? So there were variances, but at least they were trying to do the same thing. Well, that's not true in the IDEs. Each IDE has its own extension language, right? For JetBrains, it's Kotlin. For Visual Studio, it's C Sharp. For VS Code, it's TypeScript. And so we had to spend a lot of time thinking about how we could possibly deliver the same set of functionality across all these different editors. Excuse me. And what we came up with was actually kind of a unique solution, uh, and it works well, which is a three-tier client architecture where we have the front-end built in React and TypeScript. Mm -hmm. We've got a process on your computer that that we call an agent that handles things like caching, networking, database, uh, authentication, those types of things. Uh, And that's just a sort of, there's no UI for that. It's just a little agent process that runs. That's written in TypeScript. And so the only thing that we have to customize for the specific editor is sort of this glue code that interfaces Mm -hmm. with those APIs in the editor. And we write that in whatever extension language the editor is written in, uh, or the editor supports. So then all we have to do is, is convince the editor to render a web view, mm-hmm. and then we can we can use our React code to deliver the user experience. So it's, it's a pretty complicated way to, to build a UI or to build a client app, but once we have the structure in place, it enables us, when we deliver a new feature, that feature will be identical across all 14 IDs mm-hmm. that we support. Mm-hmm. How many did you say, 14? 14, yeah. and that's just including all the JetBrains ones? Yeah, it's cheating a little bit. Although although I will say that it's not the case that the JetBrains editors are identical. I used to think that, oh, JetBrains offers 11 IDEs, but they're all the same exact thing. They're not. There's pretty significant differences between them. And Android Studio in particular, uh, because it's managed with a different process... Is often you know not only different versions of behind, but different versions of libraries. So yep. there's a lot of compatibility yeah. issues that we run yeah. into. Yeah. And you've also uh, and got support...
0: Sublime and Atom as well. I see. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I see there's a roadmap. I'm trying to think about how that builds a series. Uh, eclipse oh yeah okay yeah. xcode uh, wow okay yeah <laughs> it's going to be fun. some
1: some editors are easier than others and yeah. um and we we certainly you know our, our aim is to support all the editors that the market tells us that they mm. want and it's interesting over the last couple of years to observe how that shifted yeah. um, you know we yeah. used to two yeah. two years ago we used to get a lot of requests for eclipse yeah. not so much anymore uh, and now, uh, and we used to have a fair amount of interest for Atom users. Uh, yeah, again, I know. Not so I, much yeah.
0: anymore. I used to be a huge Atom user. Um, yeah. Now VS Code it in seems some ways, to. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I VS Code think, just seems. Yeah. Sorry. It really I, has. I also don't think Atom is much longer for this world, seeing as they're both maintained by the same company now. It seems a bit yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll see. And, anyway. Uh, I,
1: I think users have spoken. I think that that Microsoft realizes and probably has realized for a while that um, Atom needs to be kept alive in order to preserve sort of the reputational risk, but because uh, Microsoft doesn't want to be seen as the company that like bought hit g- GitHub and then killed Atom, so they I, Atom was, sort of
0: was, was on its way out even before that happened. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But they've probably known for
1: a very long time that VS Code already won. Uh, that the world yeah. has decided that VS Code is better. Whether it is or not, you know, the world has made that decision. Yeah. Yeah. And now uh, they're better off just putting their resources behind VS Code.
0: Nice. Okay, so that was obviously a big change from the past few months. But what's what's next? More integration points? Uh, any other functionality? Yeah. What's next?
1: Yeah, so we we have... What, what's great about the products like CodeStream is that Because there hasn't been anything like it before, like there is no code-specific messaging system prior Mm -hmm. to CodeStream, there are so many different possibilities of direction to take it in. And what we find is that when we're responsive to customers and listen to their feedback, when we make those types of changes, um, it's, it's the best way to manage our roadmap. So the requests that we're getting from customers recently are after people see the GitHub support that we have for pull requests, well, now GitLab users are desperate to have that for their merge requests. Mm. And so that's a big initiative that we have in the next couple of quarters is to bring our GitLab support up to par with our GitHub support. And then, of course, Bitbucket. Um, so, So a lot of the work is integration work. Um, but the way that I think about our business right now is that there, there are really two complementary initiatives. One is that we essentially offer kind of a single pane of glass. I referred to it as a dashboard, but like one yeah. user interface that ties all your development tools together. Yeah. And from that perspective, we have to improve our integrations. And the other side, the other major benefit that we provide is the core messaging functionality, you know, the platform on which we build all these integrations. And that really is driving a lot of the requests from customers and a lot of the excitement around CodeStream is just make it easier, better, more powerful for my team to discuss and collaborate code.
0: It's actually interesting because... um the issue trackers especially I, I hit this point I was a freelancer for some time where I had so many platforms and I was using an app called Taco App that let me integrate some of them into an aggregated view but not all of them okay. of course there's always one or two that aren't there right um, yeah. and when I came across Codestream I was mostly excited by like "Oh, I could aggregate all my <laughs> my to-do's <laughs> everything else is a bonus yep. um, but then of course I was still missing um, one or two uh, mostly for me uh, tagged tagged Evernote notes, which is very, mm-hmm. not particularly related to development. And actually a company I work for uses something called Clubhouse, which I've never even heard of before, but is actually not bad. But then you yep. have Asana, Trello, GitHub issues, which are the main ones, to be honest with you, and a couple of right. Jira clients. But have the you considered... Must... Sorry, carry on. No,
1: please go ahead. I have just wondered,
0: have you considered some sort of... Um, Plug-in architecture where people can just add their own.
1: Yeah. So, because we're we have considered that, but one of the important um, goals for us is to give a, a really beautiful in-editor user experience. Mm-hmm. That's ultimately why CodeStream exists because we believe that right with the code, using the tool that you're using to edit the code you should be able to interact with all these other collaborative yeah. services. So w- building a, a new integration for an issue tracker involves you know, us okay, building yeah. some API yeah. calls and things like yeah. that so that yeah. we can expose the user interface. But yeah. it is pretty straightforward, and we are an open source tool, and I'm actually kind of excited that we're starting well, of course to get are, yeah i forgot about yeah, that, we're yeah. starting <laughs> to get to the scale we're, we're getting the first inbound hey you don't support x i would like to help build it yeah. and that's awesome and you mentioned clubhouse um the three most common requests for issue trackers that we don't support we support 11 issue trackers which mm. is a lot but they're we don't support them all um Clubhouse is one of them. There's a, a new app that's up and coming called Linear. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's what I've heard it described as uh, Jira done right, <laughs> or a good version of Jira, which would be great for the whole world because a lot of people use Jira. A lot of people don't like Jira. Yeah. Um, and then there's Rally. Um, so we get requests for Rally as well.
0: Okay. No, I actually ended up making my own um, application. It was an excuse to learn Flutter as well. Um, but to be honest with you, uh, your combination of you and Taco would get me most of the way. <laughs> most of the ones you want, yeah. And I spend yeah. a lot of time with VS Code anyway. So it's not everything I do is relating to code. That, that's all. <laughs> right. But that's fine. But I'll have a look at that, actually. Um, I forgot you are open source. And then I guess... So it's the core that's open source. But I mean... Can people in theory run the code stream service themselves on-prem or do they always have to go through your cloud to do that
1: well we so uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with um, something that's called the open core model yeah, yeah for um, sure. so yeah. companies like yeah. sourcegraph mattermost coder.com and also us um, we have this open core model where if you're willing to do the work and learn how to do it and, and manage it yourself, we do okay. have an open source, both the front end and the back end. Um, but what we find is that it's pretty rare The companies, small companies may be interested in doing that, but small companies probably don't care yeah. so much about being on-prem. They're probably just as happy to use our cloud-based service. Um, and then once you get above a certain scale, if you're managing an on-prem instance it's probably cheaper and easier to let us manage it for yeah. you than yeah. for you to hire another engineer or another sysadmin or DevOps guy uh, to, to manage it internally. So it's a pretty successful business model that's been proven by you know the companies I just mentioned, GitLab, uh, Mattermost, Sourcegraph, um, Coder. And it's one that, that I see a lot of promise in um, because we yeah. get to deliver value to individuals without having to charge them money. And we give them access and, you know, we support open source communities. In fact, we sponsor a number of open source projects. Yeah. And then uh, so we get exposure through that. And then over time, we still are able to monetize the product uh, through enterprise sales. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: All right. Um I usually end on the what's next question, but then I got, uh, I digressed. (laughs) So just to wrap up, is there anything else you want to add uh, that we haven't covered?
1: Um, I guess for the stage of company we're at, we we believe that we have a transform of like a a truly disruptive product. Like Mm -hmm. I'm pretty convinced, not pretty convinced, I'm convicted, I'm absolutely sure that five years from now, People will have a tool like Codestream in order to make it easier to talk about code. What I would like to ask your listeners is to give Codestream a try, and if it solves the problem that I'm claiming it solves, then we'd love to hear about that. We'd love to you know hear your experience. And if it doesn't, we'd also like to hear that, mm-hmm. because um, we're at the process where we're trying to make sure that Codestream works for everybody because I believe that every development team in the world could benefit from greater transparency and easier communication around source code. And that's why we've built CodeStream to solve that exact problem.
0: That was my interview with Peter Pexaris of CodeStream. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a follow-up interview I did to expose a couple of months back. So go and have a look at that too. And they were interested in telling me about some of the updates they had made in recent months and changes. And I will actually be re-downloading CodeStream to try it again, I think. Um, now I have a few bits of news. Uh, I have been doing a NanoRimo daily live stream that you can watch on YouTube, Facebook, and uh, Periscope. So go to my website for all those contact details there. I am about to do a bit of an overhaul of all my streams and video and podcasts next week. So following week, you may see some changes in the way things look. The podcast won't change too much. Um, so, you can look forward to that. I had a Dexposé this week with Pixie Labs, who were my interview subject last week. Um, and what else? What else? I am doing finishing up creatures such as we on the solo adventurer stream and starting a D&D adventure next week. Um, I think that's about all for now. I will do that follow up Big Sur video I mentioned, and I have a couple of other blog posts that are coming up soon. So just keep an eye on christianshiller.com. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, share, subscribe wherever you saw or heard it. Subscribe to my mailing list so you can get a succinct text version of some of my favourite links of the week. All to be found on christianshiller.com. So until next time, thank you very much for joining me.